John chapter 2. That is where we will begin. But if you also want to put your finger in Luke chapter 8, we are going to spend a significant amount of time there as well. So John chapter 2 and Luke chapter 8. We come to yet another transition point in the Gospel of John that is setting us up to think in a certain way before we learn the next part of this story of Jesus Christ. We have this short three-sentence structure here that's expressing to us a certain amount of preparation that we should have before we come and read one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. As you can see, we're coming quickly to John chapter 3. Most of you will be familiar with verse 16 there. At least I hope you are. In fact, I saw one of you wearing a shirt with it on it today. We're coming up to a very, very familiar passage, and that is Jesus' discussions with Nicodemus having to do with being born again and what that truly means. Before we even come to that, John includes this little tiny descriptor with regards to how we should be interacting with the signs that Jesus is working. We just came off of the discussion of Jesus' sign of turning water to wine, talking about the aspect of what signs are and what they're doing, what they're intending, what they're showing. Obviously, it was not just about giving people wine that day. It was depicting something about Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of of all of his ministry and what he was to do. He came into the temple and he cleansed the temple. We talked about this last time. And all of these things were being done. And what is it that the Jews ask? What authority do you have to to come in here and to overturn the money changers' tables, to, to drive away the sheep and the cows, and even, yes, the people who were selling these things with a whip, to empty out the money onto the floor and to insist that all of the doves be taken out of there. What, what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus' answer interacts with a specific aspect. They didn't ask just what authority. They said, what sign do you do that proves that you have this authority to do this? That seems an innocuous statement at first. It seems a kind of a basic thing. If somebody's going to walk in as just a random rabbi from Galilee into the temple of the mount, right there on the very front portico of the temples, and overturn the money changers table, something that the Sanhedrin had agreed to would be allowed in in the court of the Gentiles, but wasn't allowed in the court of the Jews, either of the women or of the men, but it was allowed in the court of the Gentiles. And what is it that really drives Jesus's frustration? This is supposed to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you're here stealing. And you're here interrupting their prayers. You're here making this a bazaar, not a place where you caretake the temple of God. And so they asked him for a sign for that authority, and Jesus' response is a little bit confusing to them. Tear this whole temple down, and in three days, I'll build it back again. He gives them a theoretical sign, at least to their ears. And so they mock him at this. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, they say, and you say that you will build it back in three days. 
you say that you will build it back in three days. And John includes, and this is one of the things I love about the gospel writers, uh, they usually give away the ending in context so that they don't lose us. And that's really important. So he says, he says, just in case you were, we missed this, but after he was risen from the dead, we realized what he was talking about, and we all remember this, right? We'll come up several other times. You know, this took place after he was put to death, and it's like they give away the entire ending first and then ensure that we don't miss that. And that's a really helpful thing because every once in a while, John will just come back into the text and take a stop out of this in verse uh, 22. He says, when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples, meaning himself as well, John was there that day, uh, remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What sign? What sign do you give that shows that you have the authority to fix the house of God? That is an interesting question. It reveals a lot more about the questioner than it does about the one being questioned. It's usually how it goes. Jesus in another place had criticized that generation for saying this generation always seeks signs and wonders. They want something palatable. They want something that they can hold, something that they can perceive, something that with the senses can be said, this is obviously divine in origin, therefore I will believe in it. And Jesus in another place says, when he was asked to perform more signs and more wonders, he says, look, this generation always wants signs and wonders. In fact, it wants it so much, I refuse to give any more. Only one more sign will I give you, and that's the sign of Jonah. Who knows what the sign of Jonah is? Yes, sir. Dead three days and raised again. What happened to Jonah? He goes down, sinks to Sheol, a huge fish, whatever it was, that God prepared to consume him, and at least whether poetic or in reality, in the grave three days. As far as for all intents and purposes, he's in the grave three days. He's barfed up on land again, a really nice, beautiful story, bears the sign of death all over him, walks into town and says what? Forty days hence, and this town will be overturned. It will be destroyed. That's the sign of Jonah. Three days and raised again. That's the only sign that Jesus was going to give. And what does he say here to them in the temple that day? What signs do you give to this? I'll give you a sign. Tear down the temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. The ultimate sign. But the reality was it wasn't the only sign Jesus was doing. Obviously, we've already seen water turn to wine. We're going to see several more going forward. And we already have reference here, as John is saying, there were many signs that Jesus was doing. John just mentions seven of them, but he mentions there's plenty of things. In fact, the closing verses of the Gospel of John says there were so many things that Jesus did. He uses hyperbole. He says, if we wrote them down one by one, the world itself would not be big enough to contain the books. That's actually how the Gospel of John closes out. He says there were so many signs that Jesus was doing that he garnered a following of people who were merely following him because they were in wonder about his signs and they rejected his message. There is nothing more dangerous than getting close to Christ and not submitting to him. There is nothing more dangerous 
than being familiar with the aspects of Christ, appreciating him from afar and stopping short of salvation. There is nothing more dangerous. And so today as we come to this text, a sermon entitled The Danger of Temporary Faith, something that is not talked about very often but simply must be because it is exceptionally dangerous, especially in churches, where this is where we learn about Christ. This is where, if you're like me, you were raised in church. I've gone to church since before I knew what church was. And you, you are raised to know these stories. You are raised to know the miracles of Christ. You are raised to know the biblical stories. And if salvation never comes, and you are not actually truly believing in Christ because of his message, but only because of the stories and the things that you've come to just accept as reality, there's a huge problem. You see, nobody was standing at the wedding in Cana of Galilee that dispelled that Jesus had the ability to do a miracle. These people who were picking up the water out of these jugs, bringing it to the master of the feast, saw a miracle with their own two eyes. They believed that Jesus had the power to do miraculous things, even could believe he was divine in origin. Knowing these things is not salvation. There were plenty of people who were walking around in Galilee at the end of Jesus' ministry that knew for a fact from firsthand account that Jesus was truly the Son of God, and then they stopped short. Salvation is not a matter of knowledge. Salvation is a matter of the grace of God bringing us to life again. I had an experience that many pastors have had. When I was preaching through the book of Romans, one of the things that I went into that sermon series thinking and learned completely my own inability was that if I just made the gospel clear enough, anybody would become a Christian. Now, I didn't think that theologically, but practically, that's how I was writing sermons. That's how I'd come to it. All I needed to do is just be clear enough. Here's what the gospel is. Who would turn this down? Who would ever turn it down? It is cosmic promises with temporal ramifications, blessings from the Lord that cost us nothing. The righteousness of Christ on our account, not because of something we've done that is good or because of a value imbued within us, but simply because God is gracious to us. Who wouldn't believe that? Well, to my dismay, a friend of mine who attended church there, and he wouldn't have any problem with me sharing this, who was particularly not a Christian and stated so, but wanted to attend, knew the gospel forwards and backwards, and rejected it. That was one of the most humbling experiences as a pastor I've ever had. Because it meant that 
I had to depend on God in the same way my salvation. I had to depend on God entirely when it came to his word. It wasn't just about making things clear. It was about coming and saying, this is the message of God. Believe it. And whether or not somebody repents of that is not a, not a testament of success or not. The wind blows where it does, and so does the Spirit of God. And if you're familiar with John chapter 3, this is exactly where John is taking us. And so for those who are familiar with the signs that Jesus was working, they followed Jesus for a time. They followed Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus specifically did not entrust himself to them. Their belief was based on occurrences, not on the message of salvation. It is dangerous. And we are going to jump into that today. And we are also going to be in Luke chapter 8, which is the parable of the sower, in case you are not familiar. Uh, so we are going to read both of those this morning. I'd ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. We are in John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. And then we'll move to Luke chapter 8. The word of the Lord. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Turn, please, to Luke chapter 8. Verse 4 is our beginning point. And we're going to read up to verse 15. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand." Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and when the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word of God, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for those what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that which grows in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. More than that, we thank you it glorifies you. We pray, Father, that both those things will be be borne out today, that as we look into your word, 
your spirit who illumined these words and preserved them down even to this moment. Illumine our hearts this day that we may understand and love and apply your word faithfully. This is our aim. We pray that you bless it in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. At first reading, it may wonder, why is it that we are going not only to John, but also to Luke? Here's the reality. The three synoptic gospels all use the parable of the sower to explain this aspect of following Christ temporarily and then leaving him. John does not include that parable. Instead, he includes this warning. And so while it's not the same parable, it's the same warning And John is using it instead of that parable, as far as for its function in the whole gospel. And so I wanted you to see something that was more familiar, perhaps, than this passage. While everyone likes John 3.16 and things, this is not that many people's life verse, I would imagine. Are any of these your life verse? I couldn't imagine that it would be, or anyone else anywhere, that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to those with less than true faith. That's kind of a strange thing. And so we find ourselves not very familiar with this, but how many of you have heard of the parable of the sower before? Right. It's teaching the exact same thing. And so I want you to see the parallels between these because it's just a different way that John presents the material of Jesus Christ. And both Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the parable of the sower for this one. Um, So it's helpful to see them both in, in, uh, in concert. So let's start in John chapter 2. And this is the last time we'll be in John chapter 2. And as he says to them, many were coming and believing in his name only because of the signs that he was performing. How many times in my life have I imagined that my faith would be much stronger if I could see one miracle done by Jesus? Be honest with yourself. How many times have you thought this? I just, I just want to see it so that I can verify it. I just want to see it so that I can can taste it and and hear it. I can see it. Something. Give Give me the wine that he did. Let me see him walk on water. Let me see him rub mud into a blind man's eyes that everyone in town knew was blind. Let me see him stand, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, on on Peter's mother-in-law's doorstep and heal the entire crowd at once. Every sickness, every disease, everything. Just want to see a sign. And it feels so pious to want that, doesn't it? Because I'm just trying to verify the message. And what does scripture give us? We try to make a miracle out of normal events so that we can satiate this desire. I'm going to warn us against doing that. We have miracles that occur in our lives. We'll talk about those in a second. But what we're usually looking for is not just the miraculous. We're looking for a sign, a confirmation. And sometimes we pray in that manner so that, one, this person may be healed, but, two, maybe we can see something extraordinary. Maybe that will bolster our faith more than the message of the cross does. That is what I want to warn all of us against. The message of the cross does not need personally experienced signs and wonders. And in fact, what we learn is that after the message of the cross came and was verified by those things, those things largely stopped. Why? Because of this danger. 
following Christ because of temporal signs and wonders. Following Christ merely because he can heal somebody's blindness or somebody's paralysis or, or, or restoring something that had been cut off, an ear, for instance. But healing our diseases, giving us food. John brings up example after example after example, the feeding of the 5,000 he brings up in John chapter 6. And he says the effect of this sign that he was doing, where he was just indicating for them that he is actually the bread of heaven. The reason that he's giving them the bread is to show them that they shouldn't live on bread alone. And yet, what does the crowd respond with? In the middle of John chapter 6, they say, he gives us free food, let's make him king. And so what does Jesus do? He escapes. They wanted to start a revolution with him. And he says, I'm going to leave from this place. He escapes. He goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And what does the crowd do? Follow him there. And what do they say? We want to make you king. First of all, Jesus doesn't need to be made king. Second of all, he comes to them and says, you are only following me because you had your fill of bread. And then he gives them one of the most overwhelming teachings about who he is and says to them, unless you eat me, my flesh, and drink my blood, you have no part with me. You cannot just follow me because of how it benefits your life. You cannot just follow me because there's good things that will come out of it. You cannot just follow me because you will have your fill of bread or blessing. This is what the prosperity preachers are enormously wrong on. We do not follow Christ because he will certainly bless us materially. My friends, read the stories of the martyrs. Read the stories of the martyrs who are faithful unto death for the purpose of following Christ and attaining resurrection from the dead. They are not focused on the comforts of this world. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to focus on the comforts of this world in this manner. Because if we are to focus on the comforts of this world, then the only thing we will want from Jesus is the same thing as this group. We want those signs. We want those miracles. We want to satiate what temporal needs we have and nothing more. We do the same thing. Follow Christ and it'll fix this thing. It'll fix your family or it'll fix your life. But Jesus comes to us and says, look, I do not come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. Sometimes following Christ means that your relationship with family does not get better. In fact, it might get worse. Jesus, in teaching us about hyperbole in the Gospel of Luke, unless you hate father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life, don't follow me. What is he saying? I'm not here to fix all of these problems. This is the one who is removing sin from the world. He's not the one that's improving the sinful situation. He is coming and will rid this world of sin. And in our own lives, it has been nailed to the cross. In the lives of those around us, some have been nailed to the cross, others not. The message of the cross makes us to interact with Christ in a certain way 
that is not dependent only on signs. How hard would this have been? The only interaction you ever had with Christ, you have none of the New Testament written, only the Old Testament. Here we have someone who looks a lot like a prophet come into town. And the man that you grew up with, who's been blind his whole life, all of a sudden can see again. Wouldn't you want to listen to or at least follow the guy who did that? In the town next door, he healed a man who's been paralyzed his whole life. The guy stood up in front of a crowd that was innumerable, rolled up his bed, and went home leaping. Wouldn't you want to follow that guy? Just to, Maybe just to watch him do something. What an astounding thing. I'd want to. I'd want to see him do it. But the problem is, if that's where it stops, here's where the issue comes in. It cannot stop with what he does. It must stop at what he is saying. Because the message of Christ is so much more than the signs of Christ. The signs were there to serve the message he was about to give. And in John, we haven't really dealt with much that Jesus has said yet. We're about to. And this is what John is setting us up for. He's setting us up to go, don't pay attention to the signs going forward. That's not the message. The message is what he says. And what is he about to say as we come into chapter 3? Most of your Bibles probably have a headline sitting there. You must be born again. You cannot just stay in a sinful state and just appreciate what Jesus is doing from afar. That's not salvation. And as it explains here, when he was doing all of these signs, there was many that were believing in his name because of this, but Jesus on his part did not him trust himself to them. There was no saving faith on the whole in this crowd that was following him just to watch him do miracles. He didn't entrust himself to them because he already knew all people. He knew what was in the heart of man which if you've been paying attention should not surprise you because this is God walking around in flesh. This is the very word of God himself. Now when we talk about temporary faith and things like this, it's, it's easy to kind of get off into the weeds. And so I want us to actually hear from Christ specifically on this topic in more extended, in expanded form. And that's where we're going to go to Luke chapter 8 because that's an important passage for us to deal with when we're dealing with that, such a topic. It is a hard topic. Not really many people like to talk about it because to be perfectly honest, almost everybody in the second and third category attends church for some amount of time. There's four different soils that the seed plants in. The rocky, ground, the soil with a lot of rocks in it, and then the place that has a lot of the weeds in it, and then the good soil. Despite what maybe has been said before, the reality is there's only one soil that leads to actual Christianity. There's only one soil that actually leads to salvation and is in itself salvation. And I want us to see this and here especially see the power of the Word of God to bring about things and aspects of life even in fallen people. Let's see it. 
A a great crowd was gathering. This is Luke 8, verse 4. A great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell among the path, on, along the path, on the rocky path, and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Well, that didn't work. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, imagine we just had that parable and no explanation of that parable. How difficult would it be to assess what Jesus was saying to them? Thankfully, we have this parable described and interpreted by him. And this is where it gets difficult. Verse 9, when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, we're not going to get into the purpose of parables here, but do note that as you pass by. That is a deadly proclamation to those who do not repent and believe in Christ. It is the same message that Isaiah was sent out with in Isaiah chapter 6. Who will go for us? We all know that passage. In the, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. They were calling out, holy, holy. And what does he say? Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. My eyes have beheld the Holy One of Israel. And he overhears something after his lips are atoned for. He overhears something. We have a message that needs to be sent out. Someone must go for us. And what does Isaiah say? We've even written songs with this motion. Here am I, send me. And what is the message that is given? It says first, before the message, let me tell you, you're going to give the message, nobody's going to listen. In fact, the message is designed in such a way that those who refuse to listen cannot understand. And those that do not have eyes to see will not see it. Preach so that they may not hear. Preach so that they may not see. Otherwise, they would turn and repent, and I would have to forgive them. Who wants to be commissioned that way? Go out and enjoy temporal failure. That is a very, very difficult commissioning. And Jesus here applies it even to himself. He says, this is why I speak in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. But for you, I'll explain to you the parable. Verse 11. The parable is this. And may I just say, what a gift that we have this interpretation. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. What's the implication? Without the word of God, without the message of salvation, without the scriptures, without the word, capital W, himself, how much salvation takes place? Zero. There's no seed. There's no plant. There's no fruit. The seed is the word of God. 
rightly so called, is this the parable of the sower, not the parable of the soils. It is the parable of what God is doing with his word. He sends his word out and he casts it far and wide so that it may accomplish what he sets it out to do. And what does he set it out to do? He intends for some of it to fall on the path. Some of that seed falls on the path. And what do we have here? Verse 12, the ones along the path are the people who have heard the word of God. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The word of God is spread so broadly that it doesn't just fall in good soil or also some rocky soil, maybe some thorny soil. Some of it just is flung so far and wide that it falls in the pathway. You say, isn't that a waste? No, it was intentional. The word of God is not here just to save. It is also to condemn. Those who would never come to salvation The word of God proclaims both the grace of God and the judgment of God in parallel. And so what does he do? He says that those ones that fall along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes it away from the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. It is not because the word of God is not capable of saving them. I want to point that out. The word of God is sufficient to save those whom God is saving. You must understand that this is not a built-in weakness of the Word of God. It is a feature. There is a purpose behind this. What does he say also? The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the Word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. Listen to these words. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing that belief, they fall away. Now, in retrospect, what does this mean? We see that the Word of God comes in to a person's life and it changes aspects of their fallen hearts. It actually interacts with them on a way that can change parts of their lives. But then as soon as the time of testing comes that verifies whether that faith is genuine or temporary, what happens? Fall away. Do not hear in here the lack of the ability in the Word of God. What I actually want you to hear is the power of the Word of God to actually affect fallen people towards the good. There is nothing else that can do that. Other false religions try They try to challenge people to do better, to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, and to make their lives more righteous and more honorable and more obedient. And you can use the Word of God for this, but the reality is doing that does not save somebody. You cannot just say, here's the way to live, therefore do good works, and all of a sudden you will find yourself having saving faith. It doesn't work like that. Good works... Changes in life, even temporary belief, do not bring about salvation. Jesus gives us an even harder point on this, verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by other cares, 
riches, pleasure, things of this life, and their fruit does not mature. Notice that a plant actually comes up out of this soil. It grows enough to be choked out by the thorns. So much power in the word of God to actually bring from rocky and thorny soils plants from dead soil. So much power in the word of God to be able to enact changes like this that imitate saving faith, but do not prove to be salvation at all. This is the exact thing that Jesus is dealing with in John chapter 2. Those who hearing the word about Jesus would believe in him for a while and then fall away when a time of testing comes. We, we see that he has signs and wonders and all these things, but imagine the difficulty. Once Christ ceased his ministry, signs and wonders transferred to his apostles. Once they died, signs and wonders largely stopped. Another 20 years, and you have one of the oldest disciples left. At the time that Jesus was in his ministry, the youngest guy, he's about the only one left writing the book of John, to the first generation that's not experiencing signs and wonders in the church. People would look back on this time when Jesus was there doing these things and saying, it would be much easier for me to believe that. And John says, no, 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 no. He'll later introduce us to Thomas and say there's a specific blessing on not seeing with your own eyes. Thomas, he says to him after the resurrection, you believe because you've seen because you placed your hands in my scars and in my side. You believe because you've seen these things. There is a special blessing for those who believe and have never seen. That breaks our categories, doesn't it? We would think that seeing miracles and signs and wonders would actually increase our faith. It won't. It won't. Our faith is increased only by the power of the word of God. It is not increased because we verify things with our eyes. Look, I've been to the promised land myself. I've seen, and I've actually stood on Mount Nebo and looked at the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. I've seen where Jesus was baptized. That did not increase my faith. There's not a single hour I've spent in Scripture that did not increase my faith more than seeing those things with my own eyes. Scripture has that power because saving faith is not a natural thing. It is a supernatural occurrence. And in order to occur something supernaturally, it must be carried out by a supernatural source. And your eyes, my friend, and my eyes are not supernatural sources. We may be able to satiate our curiosity with our eyes, we may be able to study archaeology and verify the claims of Scripture and at least see that there's not contradiction, but it will not bring about saving faith. The Word of God alone does this, and this is exactly where Christ goes. He says, there are those who in a time of testing fall away. There are those who in a time of comfort fall away because too many riches and too many pleasures distract them. And they choose temporal fruit over eternal, and they wither away and die. Verse 15, Jesus says, as for that which is in the good soil, there are those that, hearing the word, hold it fast 
in an honest and good heart, and the most important, bear fruit with patience. I've mentioned this before. I planted a nectarine tree in my yard about two months ago. Three. I know, it seems like eight years ago. Because one of the first things that happened three days later is some deer smelled that tree, broke through their deer fence, and ate every single leaf on that tree. Now, I know some of you like deer. I don't share that. Those of you who hunt them, thank you for your service. I have several that you're welcome to come and make use of. Don't kill them too quick. I don't expect nectarines this year. Now, it has all its leaves back because it's got solid soil and it's got a good history. But I don't expect fruit this year. You know the thing? I don't really expect fruit next year. Fruit is a long-term commitment. In fact, I planted a plum tree at my last house and we waited five years for that thing. And we got 10 plums off of it in all those years. $35 tree, 10 plums, $3.50 a plum. That's almost like a bargain these days. Fruit takes a lot of time. Jesus here is not saying, hey, this is, a, this is a blackberry vine that literally you can drop a blackberry and in about two or three months you'll get more blackberries. No, he uses trees. He uses fruit trees that take forever to bring about these things. Plums, what do they say? You plant a plum for your son and a pear for your heirs. The idea is that it takes one generation to grow plums. It takes multiple generations to grow pears. Here's the reality. To watch the word of God at work, be patient. This is why when people come up and say, well, this person says they're a Christian, but I don't see any fruit yet. Walk with them. Walk with them. All throughout scriptures, it's told for us to analyze even our own hearts. Are we just following Christ because, one, we want something extraordinary to happen in our lives, whether money or health-wise, or are we following Christ because he is the Savior of the world and there's no hope in anyone else? Those are two completely different soils. And to one of them, as John 2 is saying, Christ does not entrust himself to them because he knows the heart. And here's the thing, the people you attend church with and even yourself, you don't know your own heart. Neither do I. This is why scripture continually says, analyze yourself, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Stay enduring even when suffering comes. Why? Because suffering, the same as comfort, can distract us from what is truly important. And both of them will prove in time whether or not we are in the faith. Whether we endure our suffering or whether we are faithful when we are comfortable. The word of God will bring about the fruit of patience if we wait. Some of you have had the privilege of being a Christian longer than I. And in some ways I envy you. You've gotten to see the word of God work in your life longer than I have. And that is a laudable thing. A marvelous gift. The scriptures tell us to not grow weary in doing good. Why? Weariness makes us look for answers elsewhere. 
Endurance is what we are called to. Faithfulness is what we are called to. There are a myriad of ways this shows up in the church. One of the most pervasive these days is to define a church's success by outcomes. To say we need to have many more members or we need to ensure that we need people to have so many amount of life changes in their lives. The measurement of success is faithfulness, my friends. Whether times are easy or times are difficult, we must be faithful to the word of God, no matter what it does. Why is it that John includes this to us? Because he says, look, the reality is, if you are just following Christ because of the signs or because of the benefit to your life, buckle up. Because John chapter 3, Jesus is about to come down and change your whole world. You cannot just make up your mind one day and say, you know what? Yeah, I follow Christ, sure. It doesn't work like that. It is of the Spirit of God that does this. You must be born both naturally and supernaturally. Let me ask you a question. How much did you have to do with your first birth? Did you request it, seek it out, desire to exist, all of these things? You sit down with your parents when they were first married and they go like, I got a question for you guys. Um, I'd really like to be born. So uh, here's some prescriptions, some doctors to see, whatever the case may be. Go do this because I really want to be born. No. You just found yourself having been born, didn't you? Jesus will tell us, so it is with the Spirit. You cannot go and save yourself. You are a natural person. This is a supernatural event. As much as you had to do with your first birth, you're born again, it's going to have just as much to do with you. God will bring his people to life and they will trust in Christ. And you will learn of that in reflex. You will wake up and go, I don't know what happened and I don't know why, but I trust in Christ now and I didn't before. That is what Jesus is about to deliver to them. Here's the thing. If you're looking for signs and you're looking for wonders, you're looking in the wrong place. Look to the message of the cross. And that is what John is about to lay out for us. It is not a message of follow Christ and he's going to make you healthy and wealthy, wise, or any of these other things. No. In fact, he might make you poor. You might look stupid to the cultures around you. And you might lose all your health, and you certainly will die. That is a tough message. And the message doesn't stop there. It says, but to those who die in Christ are with him, will resurrect with him, and we will forever live with the Lord in a new heavens and new earth. 
That is the message. That is the message that says, do not exchange those wealths, those healths forever, and eternal life that never ends for health, wealth, and security here. The church in our land suffers from too much comfort. Except on hot Sundays like this. The church in our land suffers from way too much comfort that I fear many have thought that following Christ means that they will be comfortable. That is going to be a very hard lesson for us in the next generation. If I know anything about history, we're going to be less comfortable going forward. And so my encouragement to all of us is the same encouragement of Scripture. Whether comfortable or uncomfortable, stay faithful to Christ, my friends. Do not lose heart and do not lose your trust in his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for this end. We pray that our knowledge of Christ does not stay at just knowledge. That our love of Christ does not stay with just us, but that we live it out amongst each other. We do what is right for the body of Christ, whether it brings suffering or not to ourselves. We pray, Father, for faithfulness. We pray for enduring faithfulness. We pray, Father, that you set us free should we be in bondage to temporary faith that will let us down. We are yours. Save us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.